Tonight we're going to continue on looking at uh, what was introduced last Sunday night as the new heaven and new earth, as we think about the transformation that's going to take place in the future as a result of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, try to get a sense tonight of that continuation uh, that uh, I mentioned is going to happen, that uh, our lives continue on. And I said that there is much in common with the new heaven, new earth, in our present existence. There's some differences, and I want to begin to unpack that for you tonight. We uh, note that when God makes a new heaven, new earth, will be similar to this earth, but different. In the future, there will be a transformation of heaven and earth as we know it. Revelation 21.1 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The revelation of, of a new heaven and new earth comes in verse 1, where it says, I saw a new heaven, I saw a new earth. The reason for that new heaven and new earth is that the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. And I note that that most often means uh, to go away. It went away. It, there's, a, there's a change that takes place. The transformation of the new heaven and new earth is seen in the last words where it says, and there is no longer any sea. That's one of the discontinuations, the discontinuity between the present existence and the future existence. Then later in this same chapter, Revelation 21:23, it says, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, and the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and in the daytime there shall be no night there, their gates shall never be closed. But you notice there are kings, there are people, there are gates, there's involvement. And as you continue on, it reads, And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Number two, the transformation of heaven and earth will take place to more fully reveal the person and glory of God. Heaven is pictured as coming down to earth in the form of a city. Revelation 21.2 I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The New Testament conceives of the heavenly Jerusalem as the present dwelling place of God. If you'd, answer, if you'd insert that word present. As the present dwelling place of God. Where is God now? Well, God is omniscient. Excuse me, God is omnipresent. There's a sense in which God is everywhere, always has been, always will be. But yet there is a unique manifestation of his presence, and we call that heaven. Well, we could more accurately call that uh, the, the, the New Jerusalem. That is the dwelling place of God. If you look at Revelation 21, 2, I saw the Holy City New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. In Hebrews 12, 22, it says, concerning our approaching God in prayer, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So even now, as we pray, it would be as though our prayers are ascending to this heavenly Jerusalem. So in that sense, we can say the heavenly Jerusalem already exists and it is going to be coming down and God is going to have his abode here on earth. Number two, the heavenly Jerusalem is not only the dwelling place of God, but also the angelic realm. But you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. 
And then thirdly, the heavenly Jerusalem is not only the dwelling place of God, but also the dwelling place of departed saints. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the great assembly and church of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So the disembodied state. Right now, when we die, we go to be with God. Well, where is that place that we go to be with God? It's definitely Jerusalem. Uh, and there our spirits will be. And then we look forward to a time in which we're going to be resurrected and there's going to be a reuniting of our bodies and souls. But uh, right now, our spirits go to be with God in the heavenly Jerusalem. B. The meaning of the descent of the heavenly Jerusalem is that now God will dwell with his people and his glory will be fully manifested. We want to, to look at the progression that we see in the Old Testament to New Testament to the future. In the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was viewed in a limited sense as the dwelling place of God. Now, I can't emphasize enough in a limited sense. In a limited sense, God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament in terms of the temple. Prior to that, it was in the wilderness wanderings with the cloudy pillar by day. The fiery pillar at night was manifestation of the presence of God. When we move on, that what is known as the Shekinah glory appeared in the temple. And so in Second Chronicles 36, 14, it says, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. You see, his dwelling place was in Jerusalem, for the temple was in Jerusalem. However, it was clearly understood that the true dwelling place of God was in heaven. They understood that there was just a representation of his presence. But in the fullest sense, to have the complete revelation of God, that was in heaven. Now here's an extended passage, and it is the dedicatory service that Solomon had in dedicating the temple. But notice the language that Solomon uses when he dedicates the temple in the Old Testament. Verse, starting with 2 Chronicles 6.18. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee. That thine eyes may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which thou hast said thou wouldst put thy name there. To listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray toward this place. And listen to the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place 
from heaven. Hear thou and forgive. So the temple was important. The temple was the place where they were to come and meet with God. But it was clear that God was hearing from heaven. Look at Second Chronicles 6.21. And listen to the supplications of thy servant, or thy people Israel, when they pray toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place from heaven. Hear thou and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou from heaven and act and judge thy servants, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. If thy people are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee, and return to thee and confess thy name, and pray and make supplication before thee in this house, then hear thou from heaven. And for the sake of time, you can just look down at the bold print. Then hear thou from heaven. Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place. When they come and pray toward this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place. So when the temple is dedicated, we have this recurring theme that this is a special place to come and to pray and meet with God. And God will hear from his dwelling place, which is in heaven. God was never to be seen as being confined in this one little area. That this was the one place where God was. God was bigger than that. And also, God was going to be known in a very limited sense in the tabernacle. That, that he wouldn't be fully experienced. That that had to happen in his presence. Three, however, in the future, the dwelling place of God will be fully manifested on earth so that there will be no need of a temple as in the old Jerusalem. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. That is what the heavenly Jerusalem is all about. That now it's going to come down to earth, and God is going to fully dwell among his people. That we will know him fully, experientially. And there's no need for a temple there for what the temple represented is going to be fully realized in the New Jerusalem. We're to see that this life is preparatory for the life to come. We looked at a passage that referred to the, the, the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews. And it also talked about Mount Zion, the place where the law was given. All these things were predatory to the great work of God. Even, if you remember in the book of um, Exodus and Leviticus, uh, when the uh, temple is going to be, excuse me, the tabernacle is going to be described, uh, it says that um, Moses got a glimpse of the true tabernacle of God, the true dwelling place. All of this was symbolic of what was real in heaven. And so Revelation 21, 22 says, And I saw no temple in it, that is the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. 
There's no need for a temple. The covenant of God will be fully realized. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. The fulfillment of the, of the covenant was symbolized in the Old Testament. Notice Leviticus 26.12. These words should be underlined. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So here's this Old Testament idea that God is going to walk among us and we are going to be his people and he is going to be our God. And more accurately, that Israel is going to be his people and he will be their God. But the imagery is that he doesn't live among them. He walks among them. He moves among them. But he doesn't live among them, if you will. We even get the picture of of the Garden of Eden. And there, God shows up from time to time to fellowship with Adam. And we all know the story of of after Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that God shows up, God appears, and says, uh, Adam, where are you? But you see, God visits. Well, in the future, God dwells. God lives. God's permanent residence is among us. That which is foreshadowed in the Old Testament comes to fruition. The blessings that flow out of the transforming work of God. All sorrow will be removed, verse 4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. The basis for our sorrow, tragedy, evil will be removed. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Right now, we live in a period of time in which there are tears that are shed. Tears that are shed. Here on earth, and may I submit to you, even in heaven. Right now, because the former things have not totally passed away. The curse hasn't been totally removed. And so in the book of Revelation, you have, you have pictures of, of the martyred saints crying out to God, How long, O Lord, until you bring justice to the, this earth? Even in heaven, there's this longing for this day in which Jesus Christ is going to be revealed and all things are going to be made right. That is yet future to us when this curse is gone. And so what we have is, again, a foreshadowing. Number one, the removal of this curse is foreshadowed in the Old Testament in delivering his people out of bondage. Leviticus 26.13 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be their slaves and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So we get this great redemptive picture in the Old Testament of God delivering his people. And we, we talk about that in that sense. God delivered the children of Israel. He brought them out of bondage into freedom. He brought them out of this 
place where there was famine and hardship and difficulty into the promised land where grapes were huge and water flowed freely. And there was this picture, and it's just that, a picture to help us understand the future of deliverance and blessing. Number two, the removal is further foreshadowed in the New Testament with Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We usually truncate our language when we talk about the gospel. We talk about the gospel, the good news. But in the word of God, the gospel, the good news, is the kingdom of God. We tend to say, well, salvation. Well, salvation, yes, but it's salvation in keeping with the kingdom of God. The good news is that you can be a part of the kingdom. The good news is that you can experience the kingdom. The good news is the kingdom is coming. And so the gospel is, how are you able to be transformed or translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? How do you become a part of the kingdom? So Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to announce this coming time, the good news. And then three, the removal is further foreshadowed in the miracles of Jesus. John the Baptist in prison and going through all the the turmoil and eventually is going to be beheaded, things don't turn out the way that he anticipated It is difficult for uh, John the Baptist because it's not working out the way he thought it would. He certainly knew that Jesus was the Messiah. God had revealed that to him. He had announced it. God had said the one that you see the the dove landing on his head, that's the Messiah. He knew that. But yet when all this trouble and hardship came... John the Baptist sends an envoy to Jesus to ask him this question, Matthew eleven three, and said to him, Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Are you the Messiah? Go tell him what I am doing. I am doing the kinds of things that the Messiah will ultimately and finally do. Jesus is demonstrating the reality of the future in which there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more death. How do we know it? He raised the dead. He healed the blind. He gave us a glimpse of the kingdom. And that was the purpose of the miracles. They were signs. And I've said time and time again as we preach through John, that it says, and many signs Jesus did. 
that they're not even all recorded in the Word of God, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you in life from His name. They were signs. Matthew 4.23 And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. You see, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. And just so you get a sense of what it's like, he begins to heal. He begins to cast out demons. He's showing the work of the kingdom. To bring a sense of longing, to bring a sense of hope, to bring a sense of understanding that this future kingdom is on its way. Number four, the good news of the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God being established on earth. Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then shall the end come. Once this good news has been preached to all the nations. Then, the kingdom is established. See, the removal will be accomplished by the transforming grace of God. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. The transforming grace of God is foreshadowed in a small degree to the present changes taking place in the lives of his people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. A more literal translation would be, old things are passed away uh, and, uh, and all things are becoming new. That there's a, a process in this. But the point is that as we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Spirit of God works in us and begins a transformation in our lives. And that transformation is wonderful and glorious. And it's the very first stages of removing the curse from our lives. So that John the Baptist proclaimed and As he proclaimed the coming of the Lord, he said it was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the father. That there would be a new relationship that would be established. So that we might know a little bit of heaven on earth. So we'd have a little bit of an understanding of deliverance from sin. That as our lives begin to change, and there is now a hatred for that which is evil and a longing for that which is good, we begin to see this transforming grace of God in our lives. All foreshadowing. That which is deeper, richer, more complete, more glorious, more wonderful, all in the future. Number four. The transformation of heaven and earth will be a total one. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. Uh, We had, well, I won't get ahead of myself. A, this transformation is accomplished as a result of the work of Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Uh, The reason we're looking at this in this second Adam stuff is because it's in union with Christ that these things are taking place. 
The transformation, as we said last week, extends to the entire creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I will say much more about that in two weeks. Uh, See, the source of transformation is the sovereign God himself. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. See, the picture is of this throne. And the symbol of a throne is kingship. And we're talking about a kingdom. A kingdom. Which, in the millennial kingdom, it's Christ that's reigning. And in the new heaven and new earth, he gives over that reign to God the Father that he might be all in all. And he sits on the throne. He's, he's reigning. But here. Here. There is the ultimate goal. That we're to pray, our Father which art in heaven, how would be thy name? Thy kingdom come. And then the next words, together, thy on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're longing for. The coming of this kingdom. When finally, on this earth, the will of God is manifested as completely, as fully as unreservedly as it is in his very presence in heaven. No more rebellion, no more sin, nothing that goes against the revealed will of God. D. The assurance of the transformation is found, number one, in the trustworthiness of God's word. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. They are reliable. They are trustworthy. Jesus said in Luke 21, 33, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This world as you know know it will pass away. But what I'm telling you will last for eternity, forever and ever. My word will never fail. It will never change. It will be a truth. There's a a trajectory from day one. And we're to see the trajectory. We're to see all this symbolism, all these hints of what it's going to be like in the future. God delivers the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God moves among them in the cloudy pillar, in the, in the uh, fiery pillar. God is in His temple. God sends His Son. God he, in, and, and Jesus heals and casts out demons. All pointing to this future kingdom. Next, the assurance of the transformation is so great that is seen to be a done deal. And he said to me, it is done. It's done. It's accomplished. This is said to the Apostle John 2,000 years ago. It's done. 
That's how assured it is. It's assured. The victory has been won through Jesus Christ and his shed blood upon the cross. He said judgment has come. The evil one has been vanquished. We're just waiting for the inauguration of the, of the king. It's, it's like the president who's been elected but has not yet been sworn into office. We're just waiting for the manifestation of that kingdom. And then lastly, the assurance of this transformation is found in the eternality of God. He said unto me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water life without cost, etc. We'll look at those in the future. Next, the invitation to experience this transformation is offered. The offer of salvation is extended to all who desire it. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts. The one who thirsts. The offer of salvation is free, without cost. The offer of salvation comes in the hope of eternal life. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. So, here is this blessing. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. Here is the grace of God. The offer of salvation is to experience an eternal, blessed, and intimate relationship with God. And I will be his God and he will be my son. My son. Right now, we are called the sons of God. We have the intimacy. We're able to cry out unto him as Abba Father, Daddy Father. But we don't know him too well. We don't experience him very much. Oftentimes, we're not assured of his presence or his love. Right now, he's a very distant father to us. But one day, he will be the most intimate father of us. And we will know him fully. And will experience his love completely. And his protection will be made known. And we'll have an incredible relationship to him that we don't have now. Sixthly, those who do not avail themselves of the needed transformation will suffer greatly. There will be those who do not respond to this needed transformation. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire. You see, the gospel, the good news, is that we are sinners. And what we desperately stand in need of and I imagine you're going to think I'm going to say is forgiveness. But what we desperately stand in need of is transformation. A different life. We need to be free from our sinfulness. The good news of the gospel is that you can be forgiven. And as a result of being forgiven, you can be set free. Right now, we're in a process of being set free from our sins. But for some unknown reason, the majority of mankind doesn't want to be set free from their sins. They don't want to confess it. They don't want to acknowledge it as sin. They bury their heads in the sand and they're unwilling to admit 
that their lives, because of their sin, are deplorable, miserable, filled with heartache. All the sorrow in our lives are the result of sin, either immediately in the sin we commit right now, or immediately in the fall and the consequences of living in a fallen world. Our lives would be so much better if they'd be rid of sin. But people don't want to be rid of sin. You learn the great lesson of the children of Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness. Things are difficult. They're on their way to a promised land. They're on the way to a place flowing with milk and honey, but right now it's tough. And so what happens? They long to go back. And they say, oh, that we can return and be able to eat of the, the dainties of Egypt. That we can have leeks, onions, the good food. They forgot the misery of their slavery. We need to realize... We're on our way to a promised land. Right now, we're in the wilderness. It's tough. It's difficult. We should not long to go back to a life of sin and alienation from God, but rather long and look forward to that promised land. It's all typical. It's all foreshadowing. Learn the lessons of what it means to look to that future where Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham looked for a city Made by God. Abraham traveled in anticipation. That's the way we're to live our lives now. So A, there will be those who do not respond to the needed transformation. And B, those individuals will suffer greatly. That's the second part of A up top. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Which is the second death. The misery of their sin is complete. It's a finalization. It's the end of the road. So the end of the road, the final condition for the people who know God is the kingdom. And free of all the misery of their sin. For the non-believer, the end of the road is all the misery that their sin has gotten them and they deserve. Just as we are free from all pain, they are free from all grace. Right now, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Not in the future. Right now, God has pity and mercy upon all men, but not in the future. Right now, bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. Not in the future. Not in the future. The ends are the final realization of the blessedness of a relationship with God. And the hideousness of being separated from Him. So, we need to be sure 
that our sins are forgiven, that we enjoy peace with God, that we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, that coming King. Right now, we need to understand our present condition. We're like the children of Israel wandering, wandering in the wilderness. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. And so it's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. But as you read the Old Testament, you scratch your head and say, but why weren't they patient? Why didn't they learn? All those thoughts that we have about Israel, we need to apply to ourselves in our present day. Why are we so unbelieving? Why, why do we not vote with Caleb and Joshua? Why are so often we are among the other ten tribes who say we can't do this, we can't persevere, we can't go on, we can't take this land? Why are we so unbelieving? This stuff is immensely practical. Immensely practical. Because we need to look to the future. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our joy. Don't let the present sorrows destroy that hope. Understand it. Understand it. Today is hard. But a day is coming. And understand the lost right now don't seem to have it all that bad. And they don't, although there's misery for sin. But there's a day coming. A dreadful day. A hideous day. A dreadful day. In which they won't know any grace or mercy of God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that through him we can have forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. Lord, uh, help us to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and what it means to be under your reign, under your authority. May we understand what a blessing that is for the kind of king that you are. So, Lord, may we freely now acknowledge you as the sovereign king of our lives and accept your will and rejoice in that which you are doing. Guard us from mumbling and complaining. Give us a sense of your activity. Give us a sense of the future that we are going to experience. Lord, give us greater hope. Give us greater confidence. Reveal yourself more to us that we would long and be able to say with the gospel writer, even so come, Lord Jesus. We long for that coming, that day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.